Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. We are in Genesis 32. Yes, Genesis 32 tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time to come together and study your word. And we pray that you would bless us tonight as we open our Bibles to Genesis 32. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, who remembers what happened last week? (laughs) Stuff happened last week. The Laban situation happened last week, remember? So, Jacob has been, uh, he had all these kids with these wives, 11 excuse me, 12 children total. He's got 11 boys and a daughter. He will have another boy eventually. So that'll be 12 boys and a daughter. He has, that's right. So he, last week we saw him fleeing from Laban, his, uh, his father-in-law. We learned that Laban, Laban is a wicked man and a hard man to deal with. And so Jacob was getting away from Laban. Where we left off, Laban had caught up with Jacob and they cut a covenant together saying, basically, I won't cross into your territory, you won't cross into my territory, and we'll, we'll be able to live at peace that way. That's the very end of Genesis chapter 31. So now we pick it up in Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Wow. <laughs> so, we learn from this that the Bible is a, what's the best way to put it, a, uh, a mystical book. Right? We, we, we sometimes forget how, how mystical Christianity can be. That there are these people throughout the scriptures that have these, these experiences with both angels and demons. We see Jacob having these experiences with angels. Angels of God meet him on the way as he, as he travels. Um, I'm thinking of some other people who have had uh, in scripture uh, ecstatic, mystical, celestial experiences like uh, Elijah, uh, Elisha, Elijah's protege. There's that, that great story where the, uh, the, the bad guys are coming against the army of, or the bad guys are coming against Elisha, and Elisha isn't worried at all. And his servant is asking, Elisha, what's the problem? Why aren't you worried? I mean, we're, we're, we're about to get overrun by the bad guys. And Elisha uh, prays for God to open up his servant's eyes. And at that point, he is then able to see the armies of God, that is, the, the celestial angels all around them uh, that is going to go to war for them and going to go to war with them. And the implication there is that this is kind of what Elisha sees pretty regularly. Like, Elisha's not blown away by that, right? So he's like, yeah, this is normal for me. I'm used to seeing this stuff. Uh, we see Elijah uh, is also, or Elias, as he's sometimes called. Elijah uh, is taken care of by angels and ravens in the wilderness, talked a little bit in our gospel, or excuse me, in our sermon this morning about how uh, John the Baptist or John the Forerunner is pictured as an Elijah character and therefore uh, would have, uh, it's possible that he was was raised, as, as the tradition holds, that he was raised in, um, in the wilderness and taken care of by angels uh, from, from his childhood. Lots of interesting experiences that people have in the scriptures with the angelic realm question I ask, though, 
is why is Jacob seeing these angels? What, what are these angels doing? Well, remember, he's just left Laban. He's just had his conflict with Laban. And he's about, as we'll see in chapter 32, he's about to have another conflict, potential conflict, I should say, with his brother Esau. Right. Remember Esau? Esau is his twin brother. How, how did we leave Esau? What, what, what was Esau's response toward Jacob? It was fleeing. Yes. So if you remember, Esau sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for some red stew. Then later, uh, Esau tricked his father into giving him the birthright. Did I say that right? Jacob tricked his father into giving him the birthright instead of Esau. So where we left Esau, he was angry and he wanted blood. He wanted vengeance. He wanted to kill his brother. Hence, one of the reasons that, that Jacob ended up leaving his family to uh, to come to Laban's family and and marry and marry Rachel and Leah and and the situation that unfolded there. So he's gonna be he's gonna see Esau again, and he knows that Esau is out for blood. So he is nervous. So in order to meet meet Jacob where he is, God sends his angels to minister to him and to let him know that that I am with you. I'm gonna fight for you. It's gonna be okay, right? Uh, which is a really a, a wonderful and beautiful picture that that God cares enough for Jacob to even to even want to meet him in his anxieties and in his fears. Right? Hey, I'm I'm here with you. It's all going to be okay. So that's why the angels are there. Verse two. And when Jacob saw them, he said, "This is God's camp." So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps: his camp and God's camp. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. We'll pause here. We're going to see Jacob is going to send groups groups of people to Esau a little bit at a time to, to warm Esau up, right? <laughs> Eventually he's going to start sending gifts ahead of him to Esau, so uh, with his with the intention and the hope of being that by the time Jacob arrives with Esau, Jacob Jacob's uh, rage and anger towards towards Jacob, Esau's rage and anger towards Jacob will have subsided as he collects all these gifts from his brother Jacob. Verse six, and the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, "We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him." You can imagine Jacob's response. That sounds like a small army that Esau is bringing with him. What do armies do? Armies go to war. Armies fight. Exactly. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children." But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. We'll pause there. This is the first time in Jacob's life that it is recorded that we are seeing him cry out to God in prayer. 
This is the first prayer of Jacob. Now, we don't know if this is the first prayer of his entire life. <laughs> In fact, I, I would doubt that it is because we have seen uh, Jacob make uh, uh, anoint rocks and things before. Remember, a few weeks ago, he, he uh, anointed the rock uh, with the, uh, the stairway, the, uh, the ladder to heaven, the stairway to heaven. Uh, when, he, when he saw that vision, he anointed that rock. And, and so it seems like Jacob has been following God for a while. However, this is the first time it's been recorded. Now, that it is recorded, and that this is the first time in the book of Genesis that we see Jacob praying, there are some scholars who believe that this is when Jacob is converted to worshiping Yahweh, that he never worshiped God before, but now he is. He's going to fully commit to God. I personally don't think that's what's going on. I think Jacob's been walking with the Lord for a long time, but now he is going deeper in his relationship with God as what sometimes happens, oftentimes happens actually, when we come to times of great distress, that is an opportunity for us to grow deeper as we rely on God. Notice the prayer that he prays. I want to break this down for you. He, he starts off by, by naming who God is. He's the father of Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, Yahweh, who said to me, here's the promise that God gave to him, return to your country, to your kindred, that you may do good. Uh, he also mentions, uh, he closes with the promise that God will uh, make his offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Jacob talks about himself and his unworthiness in verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of these deeds of steadfast love and all the faith, faithfulness that you have shown to your servant for with only my staff, I have crossed this Jordan. And finally, his petition in verse 11. This is what he's asking for. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. So this is a wonderful structure of prayer. If you're ever wondering how to structure your own prayers, you can follow this structure. Who are you praying to? Who is God? Right? God is the father of Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, who told me, right, this is what God has done for me. This is the promises God has made to me. Right? This is who I am in light of my, my own unworthiness and in, in light of the glory and majesty of God. And finally, your petition to God. Verse 13. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Pause there. We'll see the posture that Jacob is taking before his brother Esau. If you remember, Jacob is technically the Lord of Esau. Not, not in a way to oppress Esau, but as far as birthright is concerned. He has the higher rank or the higher status among the two brothers because he's the one who received the blessing. He's the one who has the birthright, but he is humbling himself before Esau. He is calling his brother Lord. Esau is my Lord. He is also calling himself his the servant, my brother's servant, right? So he is, he is humbling himself before his brother. Verse 19. 
He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. Let's pause here. So he is sending these he takes this large present, he breaks it up into sections, and he sends these sections ahead of him with gaps in between. So that on Esau's end, Esau's going to see these people coming to him as offerings. Hey, we have all of these gifts for you from your brother, Jacob, your servant, Jacob, and he's coming up behind us. So Esau's going to get that, that first gift, and Esau's going to continue forward with his 400 mighty men, and then boom, another gift. Hey, this is a gift from your servant, Jacob. And he's coming up behind us. And then another gift and another gift. So so Jacob's intention here is to, as as the old saying goes, to kill kill him with kindness, right? (laughs) To to give him many gifts uh, in hopes that Esau's anger and rage against Jacob will dissipate. Verse 22. Now we have this interesting section in the Bible where Jacob wrestles with God. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Let's pause there because we want to get this scene in our head. So he sends his whole family across the river. He's behind we're not really sure what he's doing. Maybe he's staying behind to pray. Maybe he's staying behind to just psych himself out, you know. But but while he's staying behind, the image here is almost as someone stands in his way, will not allow him to cross the river, and they get in a fight. And they wrestle all night long. Now, I don't know about you, <laughs> but I've been in some wrestling matches before. Uh, usually with brothers or cousins. I've never wrestled professionally or anything like that or, or, or wrestled in a wrestling team. But wrestling with someone, even for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, is exhausting. It's exhausting. The picture we're getting is they wrestled for several hours. Several hours. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob... He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go. This is the man, not Jacob. Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed as he passed Penuel. It's another way to spell Peniel. Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. It's 
So we'll pause there and examine this. This is an interesting story. Jacob is left alone and this man wrestles with him. And we're not, we're not immediately told who it is. I would guess Jacob doesn't immediately know who it is either. I mean, he may think maybe this is Laban, right? It's dark, right? If you've ever been out, out camping at night, there's no lanterns, there's no light. It gets dark. So he may think maybe this is Laban sneaking up on me, wanting to get revenge for, for all the stuff that, that we had over the last 20 years, right? Or maybe this is Esau who's, who's snuck up around and, and now he wants to take my life and kill me. So Jacob wrestles with him all night long. But at some point, Jacob realizes this is, this is not a man. This is God I'm wrestling with. Because we see his response. I have seen God face to face and I have lived. This is not an angel. This is God himself. I have seen God face to face and I have lived. And there's a name change here. When Jacob asks God to bless him, he says, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, what does the name Jacob mean? You have to understand what these names mean to understand the significance of that. Jacob means heel catcher. Right? If you remember when he was born, he, Esau came out first and he was sort of holding on to the heel of his brother Esau. So it, it uh, some people will say it means heel catcher or uh, kind of someone who trips you up. Like if you're catching someone, so you're going to trip them up. So it's, it's a neutral name. Some people have suggested that it mean, it actually means deceiver or supplanter, uh, which it comes to mean that, but when he's a kid, that's not what it means. We know that's not what it means because no mom would name their kid deceiver, right? Hey, here's my son Esau, which means red, and uh, my other son deceiver right? No loving mom's going to name their child deceiver, right? So it likely means someone like who trips someone up, right? So it's a play on of, of him coming out and catching his brother's heel. And this is who Jacob is, right? Jacob is a man who trips people up. A man who trips someone up is, is, not, is neither a good nor bad person. It depends on, on the context that they're in, right? If you're going to war, for example, and you need some intelligence or you need a tactician, you probably want to hire a guy who's got wisdom and cunning, a man who knows how to trip other people up, right? You want him to fight for you. You want him on your team because he's really good at tactics. We've seen that's how Jacob is. Jacob is wise. Jacob is cunning. Jacob knows how to trip people up. He tripped up Laban when he was working with him for those 20 years. And he's uh, he tripped up his brother Esau by by uh, with Esau selling him the birthright and then even uh, uh, tripped up his, his father, Isaac, by having Isaac bless him. So Jacob is a wise man. It's only when Esau is deceived, or rather when, when the blessing is taken from Esau, Isaac's blessing is taken from Esau, that Isaac says, is his name not rightly Jacob, for he has deceived me these two times. That the negative connotation of kind of the heel catcher or the one who trips someone up is then given to Jacob, which is deceiver. So at that point in Esau's eyes, Jacob is the deceiver, the one who's going to lie to you, to trip you up. He's going to lie to you. He's going to not just use cunning and wisdom, but he's, he's going to be evil in the way that he goes about it. That's in Esau's eyes, right? That's how, yeah, that's how Esau sees his brother. So when God asks, asks Jacob what his name is, that's, that's what it means. It means 
I'm the heel catcher. I'm the one who, who trips people up. And some might even call me the deceiver, right? In fact, I'm going to meet Esau tomorrow and he hates me. He thinks I'm full of lies and deception. But God changes his name from Jacob and he says, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, what does Israel mean? Israel can actually mean a couple of different things depending on how you parse it. So it likely means that he strives with God or God strives. It could also mean the prince of God, depending on how you break it, uh, break the word, the word, the words up. Um, it could also, <laughs> it could also mean the one who sees God. So uh, Israel, Ish is Hebrew for man, Ra'ah is uh, the word to see, and El meaning God. So the man who sees God, Israel, Israel. That's one possible interpretation. Uh, striving with God is another possible interpretation. Prince of God, you get that from, uh, if you remember his, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, or Sarai. Her name is means princess. So the masculine form of that would be prince. And you can sort of see that form in the word Israel, that, that, that Sarah uh, in the male form would, could be interpreted as prince. So it means one of those things, one who strives with God. It likely means that he strives with God. So his name has been changed from this one who trips up the heel catcher, possibly deceiver even at times, to a man who strives with God. And Jacob asks him, tell me your name. But he says, why do you ask my name? And there he blesses him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. I want to return to Jacob seeing God face to face. And I want to read from the ESV Study Bible. I want to read a note on the ESV Study Bible. And I want you to tell me why it's wrong. <laughs> We've been in this Bible study for a while. So when, when you hear that someone sees God face to face, I want you to ask yourself, how is that possible? What's going on with seeing God face to face? Here's the note in the study Bible. Uh, from Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. Exodus 33, 20. So then how is it that Jacob is able to see God face to face? Here's, here's the note. In light of this, either Jacob's encounter is a remarkable exception, or alternately, the expression face to face should be understood as a figure of speech for intimacy with God. In Exodus 33:11, God speaks to Moses face to face. But in both cases, the phrase can imply a close personal encounter or possibly a vision of the brightness of God's glory without suggesting literally seeing God's face. As much as I respect the, the, the people who did the notes for the ESV Study Bible, some of whom I know and some of whom I've studied with at, at seminaries, why is this guy wrong? Because there was a really physical wrestling, wasn't there? It was a physical wrestling, absolutely. There was a physical wrestling. Was, man was really there. God was really there. 
So what's what's the argument that he's making? This is the argument that you'll hear in in most churches today, which is why I want to bring it up because I'm, I'm helping you sharpen your own skills when you're at other churches or an, under other people teaching and they say these things because this is the popular way to interpret these verses. Let, let me get that argument back. I, I closed the Bible, but let, let me get it back in front of us again so we can we can wrestle with it. We're going to wrestle with these notes as Jacob wrestled with God. Either Jacob's encounter is a remarkable exception or alternatively, the expression face-to-face should be understood as a figure of speech for intimacy with God. So we've ruled out that it can't be a figure of speech unless we want to think this whole this whole wrestling is just an allegory, right? Or we don't believe that. We believe Jacob is physically wrestling with a person in front of him. It's really happening. So it can't be allegorical. It can't just be a figure of speech. So that leaves us with his interpretation of it is a remarkable exception that he saw God's face, even though he admits in Exodus 33, <laughs> you shall not see my face and live. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So let's back this up a little bit. How is it that Moses in Exodus chapter 33, on one hand, in verse 11, speaks to God face to face as a man speaks with a friend, then just a few verses later in verse 20, that's nine verses later, he asks to see God's glory and God says, you cannot see my face and live. Nine verses apart, how is Moses able to to speak to God face to face? Nine verses later, you can't see his face and live. How is that? How is that possible? It has to do with the Trinity. You want to take a stab at it? Remember, we've seen the word of God, the word of Yahweh, all throughout Genesis already appearing to people, right? The word of God appeared to Abraham. The word of God appeared. Oh, now we're getting closer. Yes, yes, the word of God appears. So who is this wrestling with Jacob? Probably Jesus. Jesus. This is God the Son. You can see God the Son's face and live. This is what Moses sees. When Moses is talking face to face with God on Mount Sinai, he is speaking with God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Yahweh the Son. It's the Father's face that you cannot see and live. So we have to understand this within, a, within the, the economy of the Trinity. See, already in the book of Genesis, we see that there is at least a binatarianism, meaning two, two persons in the Godhead. There's the Yahweh that you can't see because his glory will overwhelm you and you'll, and you'll be killed. Then there's the Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh that appears to you physically. There's the Yahweh that Jacob wrestles with. Not only is he seeing him, but he's laying his hands on him as they they roll around in the dirt and the mud and the water. So you can see God face to face and live if you're looking at the face of God the Son. But you cannot see the face of God the Father. Also, (laughs) this just popped into my head. Did you know that there is such a thing as heretical artwork, heretical religious art? We see it oftentimes, unfortunately, in the medieval period. If you look in the medieval period, some artwork that depicts some artwork that depicts the Trinity will show 
God the Son and usually the Holy Spirit pictured as a, a dove or something like that because the Holy Spirit appears like a dove at Jesus' baptism. And then you'll see this old man with a big beard, almost looks like Zeus, and that's supposed to be God the Father. That is heretical according to the Bible because you cannot see God the Father's face and live, right? So the the church, the early church, this this principle got lost in the medieval period, which is why you see some well-meaning Christians drawing God's, God the Father's face, but they shouldn't. The early church determined, because the Bible says you cannot see God the Father's face and live, we don't image God the Father's face in artwork. We do not image God the Father whatsoever. We do image God the Son, meaning if you want to draw an icon of Jesus, you can, because... God imaged himself in Jesus Christ, right? I mean, the, the, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He walked among us. So you can, you can draw that. And with the Holy Spirit, it's a little different because it's like, well, how do we image the Spirit? Well, he did appear like a dove, which is basically a pigeon, right? Like this dove pigeon at Jesus' baptism. So oftentimes when the Holy Spirit's imaged, it's imaged like that. But in early Christian artwork, you never see the face of God. That's, that's something that's introduced in the medieval period, and it's, it's actually theologically incorrect. <laughs> so if you're, if you're ever looking at a picture of the Trinity and you see all three persons of the Trinity there, then you know that's, uh, that's problematic because you can't see the face, of, the face of the Father and live. So anyway, that was a huge, a huge aside, a huge excursus. <laughs> Let's get back on track here with what's going on in Genesis. The, the reason I brought up this ESV note is because this is oftentimes how modern, well-meaning, good, strong Bible scholars, right? Like the guy who wrote this note is not a progressive Christian, right? He's not a, a one of those non-Christian Bible scholars, right? You get a lot of non-Christian Bible scholars in universities and seminaries, guys like Bart Ehrman and other things, who just want to undo the Bible and they spend all their time just undoing everything in the Bible. That's not this guy. This, this, this guy is a strong Christian guy. And yet the note that he says is, is, is he is even thinking the two possible answers we have here are it's either some sort of analogy or this is a crazy exception because you can't see God's face and live. He's not thinking Trinitarianly because we have been conditioned in our culture to not see the Trinity in the Old Testament. We have been taught that the Trinity, at, at worst, is something that the early church made up. At best, we've been taught that you don't really see the Trinity in the Old Testament. That's, that's really a New Testament doctrine. The point I'm making, though, is that the Trinity is all throughout the Bible. All right, so I think I'm beating this dead horse pretty good. <laughs> Let's move on. Any questions before we move on to chapter 33? When are you going to write your own book? <laughs> when are you going to call up these, these guys and, uh, <laughs> and tell them the answer? I, 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 I would not feel, feel worthy to do that. Because these, these guys are great scholars. I'm, I'm not saying they're bad scholars. I'm just saying in one, this one particular circumstance, they're wrong. They get a lot of other things really right, though. Okay. All right. So chapter 33 of Genesis. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with their children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. 
He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Notice Esau's reaction. How, how would we expect Esau to respond? When we left Esau last, he was in a murderous rage wanting to kill Jacob. So we, we would probably expect him to respond similarly, right? Now, it has been 20 years. People change over 20 years' time. So maybe he's changed. We'll see. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Referring to all the gifts that Jacob had sent before. Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. Notice that my Lord language. So Jacob is humbling himself before his brother Esau. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. This is not the response we would expect from Esau. We would expect Esau to either still be in his murderous rage with his 400 fighting men ready to slay Jacob and his company, or if the gifts buttered Esau up, then we would expect Esau to say, thank you for all these gifts. I'll let you go. But that's not what he says. Esau wants to give the gifts back. You see that? If I have found favor in your sight, oh, excuse me, let me back up. Esau said, I have, I have enough. I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I don't need all these gifts. I'm good. What has happened with Esau in these 20 years, do you think? Softened up a bit. He softened, he softened up a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think Esau has converted to worshiping the Most High God, Yahweh. You know, we, we could say this anachronistically. Esau's a Christian now. Right? Not this time Christians didn't exist because <laughs> we didn't have Christ who came in the person of Jesus Christ. But the, the, the worshipers of Yahweh, right? Abraham and his family. Esau, I think, has been converted to worshiping the Most High God. Whereas before he wasn't, right? Before he was an angry, bitter uh, man who wanted to kill his brother. And now look at this change that he's gone through. In 20 years, he doesn't even want the gifts. He hugs his brother, embraces him, and they cry. All right. That's the kind of reaction that you expect to see from a man who has met the Holy Spirit, from a man who has been softened by the Holy Spirit of God. This is a man who has, who, who has, met, who has met the Lord. Now, I bring that up because this is my view, by the way. <laughs> this is what I think. I can't prove that 100%, but uh, that's, that's my view. And the reason I say that is because there, there's uh, b because of uh, some places like in the book of Romans, we read places like uh, where, where God says, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated. 
And then the conclusion to that text, we, we've talked about that in the past, that, that text in the past. But the conclusion that a lot of people draw from that is that Esau was uh, an evil man his whole life. And Jacob was a holy man. I don't think the text in Genesis actually bears that out. I think uh, Genesis is teaching us that Esau is a good, godly man now. Uh, so what does it mean then where Paul writes, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated? Well, we, again, we've talked about this in the past. So I won't bring it all up, but he's talking about the two nations that come from Jacob and Esau, the, the nation of Israel and the nation of the Edomites that come from Esau. So down the road, a long time down the road. Remember, that's actually not a quote from Genesis. We don't read anywhere in Genesis, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. That's a quote from uh, the prophets. I think, it, I think it's Malachi. I can't remember offhand now. But uh, yeah, at that time, when, Is, when Israel was, was being hauled away into captivity, it's either when they were being hauled away into captivity years and years and years after Genesis, or when they were being brought back from captivity, the Edomites mocked them. And they uh, went in and, and robbed them and treated them horribly. And so at that point, that's when God says, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. And he's, he passes judgment on the nation of the Edomites. But here where we see the actual players, Jacob and Esau, the brothers, it looks to me like both of these men love the Lord. Both of these men are, are walking faithfully with God. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, then all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and Sarah. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sarah. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. So remember, his name has now been changed from Jacob to Israel. So he is making an altar saying, God is my God. Look at all the wonderful things my God has done for me. The God of Israel, my personal God, has done for me. Shechem, Abraham, yes, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, uh, had passed through Shechem and had built an altar there as well. So perhaps this is the same altar that Israel, Jacob, now comes to. And he is, uh, he is rebuilding the altar. Perhaps this is a separate altar. We're not told. But uh, Shechem is, is an important city in the book of Genesis. This, this chapter closes with several things have happened, right? Jacob has wrestled with God. Jacob's name has been changed to Israel, which means the one who strives with God or God strives with me. Jacob has met his brother Esau, whom he feared would be in a murderous rage, yet he discovers Esau's heart has been changed and Esau himself doesn't want the gifts. Esau just wants to show his brother Jacob love, even going as far as Esau offering to let some of his own servants watch after Jacob's herds while they make that journey, right? 
So Esau's gone through a great change. And finally, we end this chapter with Jacob in Shechem. Israel is his name. Israel is now in Shechem. And uh, he builds an altar to Yahweh. And he owns the name. This identity, this identity change has happened for Jacob. He is now called, the altar is not called El Elohei Jacob. It's called El Elohei Israel. So he is now wearing that new name that God has given him. And he's wearing that in faith. This is my new identity. I'm no longer the heel catcher or at worst the deceiver, right? I am now the one who strives with God. And we'll close there. Are there any thoughts or questions? What was the purpose of Esau's journey from the beginning? The beginning of what? Well, the story starts out that he's coming with 400 men. Yes. You know, and then they come and meet, and then they continue on. We're, what was the purpose of that? I, I believe the 400 men with Esau is a welcoming party for his brother. We're going to welcome my brother with a big party. Some scholars believe that, that Esau was, was going to be murderous and vengeful and, and heart was softened in this whole experience. Why did they even meet? They met because he was on the border. So when he left Laban and they, they made that border treaty with him and Laban, the, the very, <laughs> he's now entering into his brother's land, the land of Edom, which is Esau. Edom is the same, same basic name. So he's, he knows he's, he, he's in his brother's territory and he knows his brother's gonna, gonna wanna come out and, uh, and see him. So this place where he finally went, came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land, that is not on Esau's, that's not part of anything that belongs to Esau, right? I believe that's correct. Let me check the notes in the ESV study Bible because he probably has something to say about that. I believe that's correct, but let, let me just double check. Yeah, because he, he bought the piece of land from, uh, yeah. from, from the guys there. Yeah, so it, it, it appears that uh, Esau did not own that land. Yeah, so that's not, that's not Esau's land. I wonder how far away Esau's place is from him now. Um, I, I want to say where they were, the journey back to Seir, where Esau was, was about 100 miles. And Shechem was like five miles away. So possibly part of the reason why he didn't continue the journey to Esau's home. Or it could be perhaps he still doesn't quite trust his brother Esau. So he doesn't, he doesn't want to put, him, put himself and his family in his brother's house. Sure, yeah. So he's like, ah, we're, we're going to go here just a few miles up the road and settle there rather than making the longer journey back to where Esau lives. All right. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time to come together and study your word. We pray that you would watch over us as we, as we depart now. Uh, keep us safe on our journey home, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.